Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. So they'll show up to a check cashing place. And imagine cashing your stimulus check and having 10 to 20% of that check taken away from you just to cash a check. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Olshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Most of us take our bank accounts for granted. But according to the Federal Reserve, almost 20% of Americans are unbanked or underbanked, which means they have a checking or savings account, but still use services outside of a traditional bank. That could be things like check cashing, money transfers, or payday loans. Those are really expensive ways to get your banking done, as we just heard from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And an estimated 14 million Americans have no bank account. According to an analysis from the Financial Health Network, unbanked and underbanked Americans spent $189 billion in fees and interest on financial products in 2018. But increasingly, ideas are emerging to bring access to people who don't live near or qualify for conventional banking services. Today we're talking about alternatives to traditional banking, and a few examples of how these new ideas are taking root. There's just this big problem of unbanked and underbanked communities. And I was really curious just to see like what I could find out about things like credit unions and savings and loans and the things that were meant to be community-serving institutions. Marissa Baradaran is a law professor at the University of California, Irvine, and author of How the Other Half Banks. It turned out that a lot of those credit unions, industrial loan companies, savings and loans had existed exactly for this, to provide access and inclusion to these communities, and that they had over time sort of merged with the mainstream banking sector. There are nearly 60 million people living in communities with a post office, but not with a bank. It just seems like a really great fit to bring back this institution of the post office to fill the void that the banking sector has created. In 2013, Baradaran proposed the idea of bringing back some of the banking services the U.S. Postal Service used to offer and adding some new ones like savings accounts, check cashing, and small low-interest loans. The plan caught on with politicians like Senators Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. It's very low-hanging fruit. It's not a radical restructuring. It's just taking the post office, which, you know, exists in every community regardless of profitability. And this is a decision that was made before the signing of the U.S. Constitution. This is a decision made by George Washington and James Madison and Benjamin Franklin as a way of maintaining this democracy over this wide span of space. In 1775, Benjamin Franklin appointed the first Postmaster General. It's one of the few agencies explicitly authorized by the U.S. Constitution. When the Postal Saving Bank Bill was passed in 1910, people could start savings accounts at their local post office, earning a set 2.5% interest. And it was really popular. 
a lot of people chose to bank at the post office. In the 1960s, private banks started offering higher interest rates on savings, making the postal savings accounts less popular, and these postal banks started to fizzle out. It lasted until 1966, where it sort of died this very quiet death. It didn't fail. It didn't go out of business. It was just a political decision to end it. Banks in the U.S. started out as regional. They had to earn a charter to do business, and they were regulated by their state. You had to like prove that you were responsible and your managers were you know, upstanding citizens. And you got the charter, and that allowed you to access this clearinghouse payment system set up by the Federal Reserve, the FDIC deposit insurance. But this mandate that banks serve every community, which was sort of a pillar of banking regulation for a lot of time that you couldn't merge, right? You couldn't have a bank in California and a bunch in New York and have the funds flowing. We had restrictions on that, and those went away through a massive deregulation. After a Supreme Court ruling in 1978 deregulated a lot of banking rules, banks did merge. When these banks left these communities that were not profitable, those communities were left without access to financial transactions. So in order to send exchange money, to get your paycheck, all of that stuff, you have to go through the Federal Reserve clearing system or some sort of bank. And so what filled the void were you know, payday lenders, check cashers, Western Union, and they're incredibly expensive. So poor communities pay more. They pay a toll to access these public tracks that the rest of us are able to ride for free. If we have enough money or if we live in a place that is profitable, we get free banking services and transaction accounts. And the bank is hoping that we'll do other stuff with them. So the post office would simply plug in to the same system and just allow those people to not have to pay extra to access a public system. According to Broderon, in practical terms, setting up banking and local post office branches would not be all that hard. And the network is so wide, it could reach almost everybody. We have over 31,000 branches across the country. Adding those branches would mean an increase in banking locations of around 41%. A lot of them already have ATMs, which could be replaced with post office ATMs. And so the idea is to bring that back. And for these communities that don't have access to a bank, have to drive, you know, 50 miles to go to an ATM that charges $5 for every transaction or to use, you know, check cashers or Western Union, they have a post office right there. Let the post office do their simple financial transactions. They have the security because they're already transacting in money orders. And by the way, a lot of people are using money orders as a savings account. But compared to savings accounts, money orders come with costly fees. Last fall, the Postal Service launched a pilot program to try check cashing in four cities. You could cash a paycheck or a business check of up to $500 and put it on a single-use gift card. The cost was a flat $5.95, which is almost three times less than what a check cashing business might charge. Senators Gillibrand and Warren have bigger plans. If Congress passes their proposed 2018 legislation, Every post office branch in the country would be able to offer basic banking services. Senator Gillibrand's bill estimates that postal service banking could generate $9 billion in revenue. There are some risks, though. Some make the case that there's a reason people at higher risk of default usually pay higher interest rates, and that by subsidizing these loans, it could end up being bad for the postal service's balance sheets. 
Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez released a plan in 2019 urging the Postmaster General to offer postal banking services, bypassing congressional approval. There's another question of how do we do it politically? What are the steps there? And that's actually much more difficult. There's this opposition that sometimes banks have that, that they think that you're going on their turf. And it was really interesting the last time that we had postal banking debated in 1910, where the banks were like, no, absolutely not. You're stealing our customers. And the postal advocates and the president said, essentially, this is for poor people. And that's exactly what it was. Within the postal service itself, there's a lot of support for the idea. The unions that represent postal workers are in favor of adding banking. They know that their employees can handle these transactions. And so they took this on as a way of, instead of cutting employees, cutting post offices, cutting routes, right, cutting days, that's one way to, you know, restore funds. The other is to add services that people need. And so as a business, this is a better strategy so that, you know, obviously the unions would favor. So, Stephanie, there are some arguments against this whole idea. For example, Peter Conti Brown wrote for Brookings that with the rise of digital banking, do we even need more brick and mortar bank locations? Well, I don't think the argument is to create more brick and mortar locations. I think the brick and mortar locations are there in the form of the post office. And the proposal is to use the existing locations, but to expand the services they offer. And I think the problem with the rise of digital banking argument is that many of the same people who don't currently have access to you know, depository services or banking services also don't have access to Wi-Fi and broadband access is limited across parts of the country where the very same populations of people who have trouble finding banking services are often without adequate connection to wireless and, and the internet. Right. And it's also important to keep in mind that the idea here isn't that the post office is going to replace all of the functions of a bank. Right. The post office can provide small loans to people who might be looking to borrow only a few hundred dollars. And that's not the kind of loan that a typical bank would even extend to people. So if you could provide a place for them to do just basic banking efficiently at a place like a post office, it would be a huge help for them. Although, would everyone even agree that the Postal Service is efficient? I guess if they can deliver the mail through rain, sleet, or gloom of night, there's no reason to really think they're incapable of handling basic banking transactions. Right. They did it for many years, and they process many transactions today. So it seems to me it wouldn't be all that much more to ask of officials at the Postal Service to process small deposits, even small you know, paperwork for small loans. And this is not such a crazy idea, right, Stephanie? I mean, Japan, Germany, and South Korea already have banking at their post office locations. And even U.S. post office locations do handle financial transactions today. Yeah, they'll process money orders and then other payments. So it isn't pulling them into an area that's a huge departure from the basic kinds of transactions they already process. The post office is not the only place disrupting traditional banking. Coming soon, your state might be offering you a business loan, or your local bank's address might be on the blockchain. That's after the break. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. 
With models at every point on the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high volume, high speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we were talking about how your post office could become your local bank. There are also some other options on the menu. Our goal is to get publicly owned banks established locally across the country. Ellen Brown is founder and chairman of the Public Banking Institute, a nonpartisan think tank to encourage the creation of public banks. So a public bank is a bank owned by the people through its representative government. So it could be a city-owned bank, a state-owned bank, a county-owned bank, a tribally-owned bank. In Brown's view, private banks charge too much interest and earn excessive profits on the services they provide. The catch is that over a 30-year mortgage or a 30-year infrastructure bill, you will pay back as much again in interest as in principle, and they don't create the interest. So we want banking to be in the hands of the real productive economy and the people who actually produce things. Brown makes the case that in a more efficient system, the government would lend money directly for a purpose, like building a railroad, and then the profits from the railroad would pay back the loan. And that's basically what Lincoln did during the Civil War when he issued greenbacks directly as credits. Our system doesn't work like that anymore. There are a few exceptions, though. The model of the Bank of North Dakota is that, by law, all of the state's revenues are deposited in the bank, and that's their, basically their deposit base. And then they can lend from that. The bank does not compete with the local banks. It partners with them, and the local banks are happy with the arrangement. And by many measures, it's been very successful. Brown says that's because they've cut out the middleman. They don't have investors who insist on short-term profits. They don't have to advertise for borrowers or for depositors. They have a built-in deposit base, which is the state. And then for borrowers, they partner with the local banks, so they don't even have to advertise there. Like the postal banking idea, public banks would be accessible to the local and lower-income communities that bigger banks tend to overlook. Brown says that means they're not really competition for big banks. We've got, what, was it 400,000 businesses went bankrupt last year? So... There's definitely a need for credit in the local community, and there's no interest among Wall Street banks. They're dealing at a totally different level. Banks have minimum capital requirements, so to create a state bank, you'd need to start with a fair amount of money. Brown says a minimum of $30 million for a small operation, but for what she calls a decent-sized bank, probably more like $100 million. In Philadelphia, City Council Member Derek Green has a similar plan to the North Dakota State Bank 
that he hopes could work on a more local level. We talk about how do we grow black and brown businesses, but if we don't find a way to equip them to have a better ability to access credit, they're not going to be able to grow. In some parts of the country, people are looking at a public bank to receive deposits from individuals and commercial customers. What we're trying to do here in Philadelphia is more of a public entity that can hold, say, deposits. We're also looking at a separate entity that can really help provide access to credit for black and brown business owners. For a lot of small business entrepreneurs, the lack of track record or collateral makes borrowing difficult. If I go to that traditional bank, they may say, well, you know, Mr. Green, I know we've had a deposit relationship with you, but we've never had a lending relationship with you. And you've never had a lending relationship at that level, even with your community-bound financial institution. The recent infrastructure bill that was signed is sending money to cities and providing opportunities for local businesses. But some businesses won't have what they need to qualify. So now I have an opportunity. I want to grow my business, provide more jobs by having this opportunity from the infrastructure bill. But now I can't take advantage of that because I cannot get access to credit. So what the Philadelphia Public Financial Authority, which is the first step towards creating a public bank, would provide is credit guarantee. So that way, when they go to that traditional bank, they can say, I have some collateral that makes me more credit worthy. Now I have some collateral that I can back up my business and my application. The poverty rate in Philadelphia hovers at around 25%. Green hopes access to credit will provide opportunities to create new locally owned businesses and reduce the crime rate. I believe all those issues are interconnected and we need to find ways to help those entrepreneurs, many sole proprietorships, be able to grow. And we believe through this public bank initiative, they can get better access to credit and reduce the poverty in our city, which ultimately would impact the gun violence issues in our city. Traditional banking is also getting competition from new crypto players. The growth of DeFi, decentralized finance, which we explained in our recent episode on crypto, has allowed new startups to find ways to expand into banking as well. Companies like BlockFi and Kraken Bank are making moves so quickly that regulators are having trouble keeping up. Jersey City-based BlockFi offers credit cards, loans, and interest-generating accounts in crypto. Kraken has gotten a charter in Wyoming, which will allow their clients to hold crypto assets without involving a traditional bank. Kraken Bank received the first crypto bank charter in 2020, but so far they're not open and they're not FDIC insured. You can imagine that this is potentially disruptive of the American banking and investment system, and therefore there's probably some skepticism of it. Aaron Lammer is co-host of the crypto-focused podcast, Cointalk. People might also say that it's an end run around regulation, that the same regulations that apply to, say, American banks don't necessarily apply here, for one, because it's just open source code, and for two, it's participated in by people all over the world. Lammer thinks there are ways using crypto could improve on the way banks do things now. I think cryptocurrency may allow people sort of forms of financial freedom that aren't available from the current banking system. I think having the ability to sort of 
use and deal with money directly off the internet is a net positive for the world. So in my opinion, if you are worried about something like crime associated with cryptocurrencies, I would not try to suppress cryptocurrencies. I would try to sort of mainline them into the traditional system so that people are using them the way they're using like regular bank accounts. Mayor Sibaradaran, who wrote the proposal that revived recent interest in postal banking, says the main thing we need to do is get cheap and safe banking access to the people who need it. We in the U.S. have laws. If you want to transact, you have to go through the banking system and they have to know exactly who you are. You know, a lot of other countries don't have that. You can just send mobile to mobile. We have laws where if you even go through Venmo or PayPal, you have to have a bank and that verifies who you are and sees all your stuff. I guess the argument here is there should be some minimal level of banking that's a public service for everyone, right? I think that's right. I think if we all recognize that we need basic banking services, all of us need that. We need check cashing. We need to be able to deposit money. We need to be able to withdraw money. We need to be able to transfer money. And not everybody has access to those basic services. And that's what we've learned in this episode is that millions of people don't have a place in their local community that they can turn to for access to those very basic services. So this shouldn't be interpreted as some kind of government takeover of banking, so much as filling those gaps in access. Yeah, I think it's where the private banking system has decided it doesn't want to operate. And it's left those communities without access to those services. So it's not really competing with the private provision of those services in places where it simply doesn't exist. The system of banking that we have is public. We have public banking. It's just not widely accessible to the public at the same cost. Let's just open up some of those doors to those who need it the most. Whatever system we end up with to bring access to banking to people who don't already have it, whether it's postal banking, state banking, or a bank on the blockchain, or maybe it's all of them, we need to make sure that everyone can use their money in a way that works for them. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And special thanks to all of you who have posted your reviews. We really do appreciate it. As you probably already know, it's the single biggest way other listeners discover us. If you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Marissa Baradaran, Ellen Brown, Derek Green, and Aaron Lammer. To learn more about disrupting banking, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.